Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in throughout the summer uh, on a group of psalms, a uh, book in the Old Testament. Uh, the psalms formed essentially the hymnal or the prayer book of ancient Israel. And the psalms that we're looking at over the summer are the psalms that the New Testament writers pick up and quote from to explain and to color in who Jesus is and who he was in his life, who he continues to be in his reign for us. The Psalms paint a picture and give us a language uh, for praying our lives back to God. And here we see how they even guide us, uh, written as they were thousands of years before Christ, they guide us to see Christ more clearly for who he is. And so this morning we're going to be in Psalm 22. Uh, If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death." For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him. 
but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will, I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. Thanks so much. You guys can be seated. Nicholas Wolterstorff is one of the world's leading uh, philosophers and ethicists. He's on the faculty at, the university, at Yale University. He uh, is an older man now. He lost his son, Eric. Uh, he had several children, but Eric died in a mountain climbing accident uh, as a 25-year-old. He wrote uh, a short little book called Lament for a Son uh, after the death of Eric. And it's essentially an extended diary as he processes his own grief uh, about his son's death. And I can't tell you how painfully beautiful and raw uh, it is as a book. Here's a quote. Will my eyes ever adjust to this darkness? Will I find you in the dark? Not in the streaks of light which remain, but in the darkness. Has anyone ever found you there? Did they love what they saw? Did they see love? And are there songs for singing when the light has gone dim? Or in the dark, is it best to wait in silence? Noon has darkened. As fast as they could say, he's dead, the light dimmed. And where are you in the darkness? I learned to spy you in the light, but here in this darkness, I cannot find you. If I had ever looked for you or looked but never found, I would not feel this pain of your absence. Or is not your absence in which I dwell, but your elusive and troubling presence. Wolterstorff beautifully models for us a type of prayer and a language of prayer that we have almost entirely lost uh, in our world today. It's the language of lament. The ability to bring our sorrows, to bring our traumas, to bring our pain before God, and to offer up tear-soaked prayers to God. You know, this psalm that we came to today, Psalm 22, is, uh, is the first in this journey through the psalms that we've been doing. It's the first psalm of lament that we've come to. It may be the most well-known psalm of lament in the Bible because of the, the role that it plays in the Gospels. It's the most quoted psalm uh, by the Gospel writers. But a full 40% of the psalms, a full 40% of the psalms are psalms of lament, prayers rooted in sorrow and suffering. A recent survey, uh, you can find this online, uh, there's an organization that does the licensing for all Christian worship music. So before we sing a song here, we have to make sure that we have the right to. It's all good legal things. But through this, they're able to track the songs that are sung in American churches. And of the 100 most frequently sung songs in American churches, say of the top 100, five of them could be classified as having any piece of lament in them, any acknowledgement of sadness or sorrow or struggle. 
So the 40% of Israel's life that was taken up in lament, we've reduced to about 5% of our prayers, of our songs uh, that make room uh, for this kind of sorrow. As a people, uh, we don't know how to sit before God and weep. We distract ourselves. We numb our sorrow through our addictions. We distract ourselves through our hobbies. Sometimes we even attempt to theologize our way out of suffering. Right? We, we have a view of God that doesn't leave room for sadness, believing that God uh, expects us to remain ever joyful and bouncy and happy. But yet all of us know uh, that this world uh, is at least comprised 40% of sorrow. Right? There's at least uh, 40% of this life that we experience as less than it should be, less than we were created to experience. We know it in our bodies, we know it in our souls, we know it in our families and our relationships. And so for the faith, for the Christian faith to be credible in the actual world that we live in, the real world, uh, it has to have the ability to resource us to suffer, to learn to go before God, not just on our good days, but on our dark days as well. And so Psalm 22 shows us lament. It shows us how uh, to lament, to be sorrowful uh, before God. This, uh, this psalm, you probably noticed it as we were reading it, it's marked in two very clear halves, right? Up to, up to and through verse 21, it's focused intensely on the suffering of one individual. Uh, the author, David, uh, is talking about and narrating his experience of suffering his, his experience of the absence of God, his experience of shame and vulnerability. So for the first over half, the first 21 verses of the psalm, it's about an individual suffering. And then from verse 22 on, uh, the focus shifts to that same individual moving towards joy and worship, and then leading not only himself towards gratitude and joy, but also the entire congregation that's gathered to worship, then all of Israel, and then it ends with this statement of worldwide praise. So it goes from the suffering of the one to the joy and worship of the many uh, around the entire world. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, tells us that every psalm of lament carries this basic movement, that it goes, uh, the two halves, he, name, he names disorientation and reorientation. Right? We know what that's like, that those words make sense to us. When we suffer, when our lives experience hardship, we feel disoriented. Our theology seems to shake. We wonder how to make sense of it. We wonder how to make sense of it within our faith, within our hopes, within our expectations. We get disoriented. But the psalmist, when they pray their disorientation, God moves them back towards a reorientation, that in spite of their suffering, the world is still stable, he is still God. He doesn't leave them or forsake them or abandon them. And I think many of us fear that if we are really honest, if we really give voice to our disorientation, that we'll never find our way home again, right? That if we truly admit to ourselves that things are as hard as they seem, if we give voice to God's seeming absence, that we'll never find him again. And yet the experience of the psalmist over and over again is that when we honestly lament when we honestly name our sorrows before God, he reorients us by his grace back to himself. And so this morning, we are going to follow the psalmist and look first at suffering in the absence of God, then suffering in the experience of shame, and then finally, uh, uh, suffering in the life of God himself. 
Uh, first, suffering in the absence of God. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I love that statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only because you may recognize them, uh, all three of the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place these words on the lips of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I love these words because they do, I think, show us what it means to suffer in faith. Right? On the one hand, God is still real enough to him that he can call God my God. Right? Twice, my God, my God. He's not a distant or abstract deity. Even in the midst of his suffering, the psalmist still names God. God, you are my God. You are a God that I know. You're a God that I have a relationship with. You are still my God. And yet, why have you forsaken me? My knowledge of you is that you're my God, but my experience of you is that you are far, far away from me. I can't see you. When I pray to you, you don't seem to answer. When I go to you in my desperation, you don't seem near, but you seem distant. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you look, this entire first portion of the psalm is an oscillation between uh, the psalmist talking about his suffering and then him acknowledging the goodness of God. So there's these yet you or yet God sections. So it starts with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then in verse three, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Verse six, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by, my, by mankind and despised by the people. Verse nine, yet you are he who took me from the womb. And all through those first 21 verses, it alternates between his suffering and the yet God remains good, remains faithful. And this is, I think, uh, close to how we experience suffering in this life, is that we are a mix of faith and unbelief, especially when we suffer. We experience God as absent and far from us. In that, we're, we're, we're likely to call out to him and feel like he's abandoned us. We're likely, like Job, uh, to even be tempted to curse God in the midst of our suffering. And yet, the remnant of faith still remains. Even when God seems absent, we still remember uh, our belief. We still remember what it was like when he was nearer to us. Many of us, I think, uh, come to a point in our lives where God's absence in the face of our suffering seems to mean that we have to abandon the faith altogether. Right? If there's one experience in life that leads people uh, towards walking away from the faith, and there are many, but maybe the, the lead one is when we suffer and God seems absent, and we wonder, how could a good and loving God allow for this kind of suffering in my life? How could a God that I, that I believe answers prayers seem to not care enough to answer mine? And so the problem of God's absence in our pain what theologians sometimes call the problem of suffering, the problem of evil, can lead many of us to feel like we have no choice but to abandon our faith as naive or not connected to our experience in life. And yet the testimony of the church, of Christians over the last thousands of years, has been that it's precisely at those moments where faith seems frail, where faith seems implausible, that real faith actually begins that we can lose the naive faith of our childhood and come into a faith that's more in touch with life in the real world. 
A faith that clings to God's presence even in the midst of his seeming absence. A faith that knows God's goodness even in the midst of the pain of this world. A faith that instead of viewing evil and suffering is excluding the possibility of faith. A faith that is tested and made sure through the experience of trial and suffering and pain. A faith that can cry out uh, in the midst of God's absence, uh, believing in his goodness. There's a beautiful promise in the prophet Isaiah that Isaiah, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, says of that one, of the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break, and a barely smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What does that mean? It means when our faith is weak, when we know it to be a mixture that seems just on the edge of doubt and unbelief, that Jesus won't break that feeble faith. When our faith feels like, a, we've, you've all seen a, a wick on a candle when it's going out, when it's still slightly glowing at the end, and all you have to do is just blow on it a little bit or snuff it out and it just goes away. It says the Messiah, Jesus, he'll take that little, tiny, tiny little smoldering bit of faith and he'll protect it, and he'll breathe new life into it until it does uh, burn again. The experience of suffering, of sitting in our pain before God, is a key element of what real faith in a broken world looks like. God wants us to bring our pain and our sorrow to him. When we experience suffering, we're left with one or two options. We either abandon our faith, and say it can't be true in the light of this, or we double down on a kind of naive faith that ignores our suffering, right? We've all been exposed to that kind of faith when you're in your sorrow and a friend comes around to you and says, hey, cheer up, it's going to be okay, right? The, the, the theological equivalent of turn that frown upside down, right? It takes more muscles to smile than, or to frown than it does to smile. Um, you know, these kinds of well-meaning but ultimately painful uh, in quote-unquote encouragements. So when many of us do that, in suffering, we just ignore it and double down on a naive uh, kind of faith. Or we invite or we follow this invitation to honest lament. The first words of lament uh, we can find in Shakespeare's King Lear when he says that the first rule is to speak what you feel and not what you ought to say. Right? We all know the kinds of words that we ought to say. We know the kinds of words that are acceptable uh, in church. We know the kind of words that are acceptable when you sit around uh, the table, maybe with your growth group, and they ask you, how are you doing? We know that everybody is more comfortable when we say, I'm good. Things are fine. It's been hard, but I'm doing all right. right? We know that that's a, that's a less awkward conversation than it is to truly uh, speak what is, not only in the outside of your life, but what your experience of it is in your heart. Friends, if the church is going to offer good news to the world, we must be a place that can help people find a voice for the bad news of their lives. Right? If our good news is going to be taken seriously, we have to be a safe place for people to learn to lament, for people to learn to carry their sorrows. That is especially true as we undertake the kind of ministry that we feel called to as a church. You know, uh, uh, a full uh, quarter of the children in the city of Jacksonville are born into poverty. One in four. You can go down the line and count off in, in this room. That means a quarter of our population 
uh, lives in poverty. What we know of children who live in poverty, who are born into poverty, uh, is that psychologists tell us that many of them experience the same level of trauma that you expect to see and do see from soldiers as they come back from Iraq and Afghanistan. That to live as a child in poverty is to grow up with trauma, with abuse, with neglect, uh, with the, the survival mentality that instead of growing in the way it should remains fixated on survival. How do I get what I need to live? And these effects have lifelong ramifications on children. Chelsea Coleman, one of our members who works in the juvenile justice system, tells us that statistically 90% of kids who end up incarcerated as minors have suffered severe trauma in their lives. And if we're going to minister effectively to a traumatized population, it's going to require being a place that can handle sorrow, being a community that can give voice to lament, that can, as Jesus says, weep with those who weep, who can be a safe place for people who are not able to say, no, everything's fine, everything's good, but can be a place that can hold one another in our suffering and in our weakness and in our weeping. Next, let's look at suffering uh, in the experience of shame in David's life here. Look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is maybe one of the more visceral depictions of shame anywhere in the Bible. Mocked by everyone around him. Right? Laughed at. Mocked for his faith. And then turning on himself. Right? Those words, I am a worm and not a man. I believe that these words represent what happens uh, when we experience suffering and sorrow. Uh, that we do move towards shame. Right? That there's something about me in the midst of my suffering that is not normal, that is not good, that is not acceptable before God, right? I am a worm and not a man, right? We know that that is not a theologically accurate statement of human worth and value, right? Just a, a couple of psalms ago in this series, David said, what is man that you're mindful of him, yet you've crowned him with glory and honor, making him a little lower than the angels, right? That, that we were made as, as kings and queens over God's creation. Our lives are endued with dignity, and yet here, the same author, the same psalmist says, I am a worm and not a man. What suffering unprocessed does, what many of us do with it is we turn it inward on ourselves. Psychologist Dan Allender has been helpful in this regard. He tells us that the experience of suffering always leads towards anger and contempt. And as people, we either turn that anger and contempt outward towards others and get angry or we turn it inwards at ourselves, self-contempt turning into shame, right? And in some ways, others, neither one are healthy, right? Both are sinful responses. Contempt is always sinful. But at least when you're angry at others, you can process it, you can express it, you can forgive, you can, ex you can achieve some kind of reconciliation. Contempt directed at yourself is so much harder to deal with. Right When you take your suffering and instead of bringing it to others, instead of bringing it to God, you bend it back on yourself. 
I've had the experience um, while living with uh, a nurse as a wife and raising two small boys. Uh, we have experienced our share of injuries in the house, and I'm so grateful for my wife's medical training when these injuries happen. Um, but on the innumerable times that my children have bumped their heads, uh, falling off of bunk beds, playing tackle football, wrestling, whatever the case has been, uh, what their nurse mother will often do is look on their head to, make, to see if there's a bruise. And when she sees a bruise, she says, oh, good, there's a bruise. You go, oh, walking around with a big knot on your head, that doesn't seem like good news. But what I've learned as a non-medically trained uh, person is that as you experience trauma, there will be swelling. And if it's not swelling on the outside, then there's a risk that there's swelling on the inside, that there's blood leaking into the brain, that there's that kind of thing happening. I've, I've probably butchered this medical diagnosis. Um, uh, but our emotional traumas are the same. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Just because you're not giving external expression to it doesn't mean you're not damaged on the inside. Does it mean that there's not trauma that, that you're not expressing? And very often that comes uh, in the form of shame. I am a worm. I'm not a human. And yet God views us uh, not as worms, not as subhuman animals, uh, not as people who in our pain are abandoned by him. Look at how David comes back. The next uh, stanza there, starting in verse 9 right after I am a worm and not a man. Verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. David's coming back to himself. I'm not a worm. I'm the one who was created in love, who's been shepherded and cared for in love from the time I was in my mother's womb and to the time I was nursing at her breast. Ever since my birth, God has held me. He's provided for me. He's watched out for me. I'm not a worm. I'm a beloved child of God. And that's the beginning of him coming back to himself. A couple weeks ago, I guess last week, uh, my family and I went to go see a new movie, Toy Story 4. Some of you may have seen it. Um, I'm not going to spoil Toy Story 4 if you haven't. Um, but there's a new character in the Toy Story universe. Uh, Toy Story 4 introduces us to a new character named Forky. Uh, Forky is a, uh, a toy that a kindergarten-age girl makes on her first day of kindergarten. She's anxious and worried. She doesn't want to be at kindergarten. She's away from her family. She's away from her toys. And so she takes a spork... Um, which I got to explain to my children what a spork is. Um, she takes a spork, she takes some pipe cleaners and some popsicle sticks, and she breaks them and twists them and makes them into Forky. And of course, in the Toy Story world, all of the toys have voices and they're alive and they interact. And when Forky gets brought home, uh, Forky doesn't know that he's a toy. Forky believes that he is trash uh, because he was pulled out of the trash to be made into Forky. And so whenever uh, the little girl leaves and he's left with the toys, Forky, uh, riddled with anxiety about this change in his life, starts going, trash, 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 and bouncing his way towards a trash can. Every time she closes her eyes, every time anything happens, Forky attempts to throw himself in the trash because he believes that's where he belongs. He believes that's what he is, that he is trash. Well, Woody, the toy cowboy, 
uh, comes alongside Forky, and his job throughout the movie is to convince Forky that he is not trash. And he's not trash, not because of what he's made of, not because of the worth of a spork or a pipe cleaner or popsicle sticks, but because he was made in love and that he means something to this little girl. That for her, he's a toy, he's not trash. For her, he brings security and he brings comfort and he brings love into her life. And so he works to convince Forky that he is not trash, but is actually beloved. And in that, there is a beautiful picture of the gospel. That for so many of us, we believe that our worth is found in the sum of our parts, in the sum of our accomplishments, in the sum of what we do compared to others. Right? Compared to the other toys, Forky's not much. They have buttons and they flash and they do things. But in the love of this little girl, Forky is of infinite value because she made him in love and she values and treasures him. David learns here that his value is in the fact that he was conceived in love. He was made and created in the love of God. He's been sustained and held in that same love. If we wonder what God thinks of us, we need only to look at that, that he created us and made us in love. The psalmist tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. But not only did he create us in love, he redeems us in love. Right On the cross, we see the depths of the love that God has for us. God doesn't die for worms. He doesn't die for trash. He dies for his beloved, his sons and his daughters, to gather them back to himself. Which brings us finally to look at suffering in the life of God. We can't begin to understand this passage uh, until we come to terms with the ways that the gospel authors uh, take this passage up to explain to us who Jesus is, right? We know that on the cross, Jesus takes these words on his lips and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some commentators also believe that the, the, the uh, gospel authors use this psalm to set up the framework of the Passion Week of Christ, the mocking and the betrayal of those around him, the mocking, if you are the Son of God, save yourself, Sounds a whole lot like if you delight in God, call out to God and he'll save you. No bones uh, broken, people mocking him, piercing his hands and his feet, dividing his garments among them and casting lots for his clothing. David experiences a kind of suffering in his life. We don't know the exact situation. Uh, but the way that he describes it becomes for us a picture of the suffering of Jesus. He speaks beyond his own suffering uh, to the ultimate suffering, the suffering of the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God himself uh, on the cross. There are all kinds of ways that we wish God would answer the problem of suffering, right? Some of us want psychological or, or philosophical answers, right? How can an all-good and all-powerful God allow for this kind of suffering? Others of us want the, the, the answer of it getting fixed for us right away. We want the suffering to be taken away in an instant. But the way that God answers the problem of human suffering isn't by answering all of our philosophical questions. It's not by taking it away in an instant. It's by entering into it and taking it on himself. Right? That when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see the Trinity itself scarred by suffering and evil. We see God the Son experiencing the seeming abandonment of God the Father. We see God the Father going through the loss of losing a son. The loss that Nicholas Wolterstorff lamented 
as he mourned the death of his young son. God the Father went through in losing his beloved son. Jesus, who knew no sin, took the full weight of human guilt and sin and darkness on himself. Right, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does darkness hide your face? Why does your your presence seem shrouded to me? Though Jesus doesn't receive an answer on the cross, Paul will tell us why God seemed absent to Jesus that day. It's when he tells us that, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Right, Jesus is the only one who ever lived that did not deserve the abandonment of God, that did not deserve to ever know God's absence. But when he became sin, when he took on the full weight of human sin, that sin became a shroud that veiled the face of God from God the Son. And so there on the cross, God himself is forsaken by God. Light itself experiences the blackest of darkness. And love himself experiences the wounds of hatred. Why? Why did God take on to himself this experience of suffering? Well, we receive numerous answers, but Paul's answer there is the clearest. After that, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might be clothed in the sinless righteousness of Jesus, included in him, that his death might be our death, and that in his resurrection, we might experience new life. You know, there's two different verses of this psalm that are placed on the lips of Jesus by the New Testament authors. The first is the most famous, Psalm 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 2, chapter 10, uh, sorry, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, places uh, verse 22 also on the lips of the resurrected Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That's verse 22 of this psalm. I will tell of your praise to my brothers in the congregation. You know, some of us uh, know the power of hearing another person's testimony when we're suffering. Right? Not somebody sharing their story in a way that makes it all about them or draws the attention to themselves. But somebody who in the midst of your suffering comes alongside you and says, I know what it's like to suffer. I've been there. My heart has been broken. I've lost a child. I've walked through a divorce. I've known the pain of anxiety or depression or whatever the the issue is. We know what it is for someone to genuinely connect connect with us in our sorrow, to share their own and to weep over it. And maybe there's somebody who's come out the other side of it a bit and they're able to say, But let me tell you, there's life on the other side. There's life on the other side of the mourning. There's life and gain on the other side of the loss. There is life after sorrow. Well, that's what the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is doing for us. Right? That Jesus leads us in worship. 
right? We, we, have a, we have a worship leader. I lead parts of our worship. Matt or today Ed leads parts of our singing. But here it says that Jesus is the worship leader of the congregation. As we sing, as we pray, Jesus by his spirit is alongside us and with us, putting his arms around us. And what is he saying? He's telling us his story, right? It says that he will tell in the great congregation, he will tell his brothers and sisters, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise him. Imagine Jesus coming alongside you and saying, I know what it's like. I know what it is to feel abandoned by God, to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To have God's face veiled by sin and sorrow and shame. I know what that is, but I also know what it is to learn for a fact that your God has not abandoned you, to know that his love reaches even into the grave because I died. And on the third day, I rose again because my father, by his spirit, breathed new life into me. And he'll do the same for you. He will not abandon you or forsake you. That's not who my father is. That's not who your father is. We don't have a fickle father who leads, leaves us when the going gets tough, who abandons us in our sorrow. We have a God of resurrection, a God of power and of life who will not abandon us to our lament. That lament will give way to praise. That sorrow will give way to glory. And all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, verse 29. Before him shall bow down all who go to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Encouraged by Jesus, joined to him in his death and resurrection, will proclaim that faith to the coming generation and to the world of who our God is, a God who never abandons his own, who clings to us even in our sorrow. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org. 